Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tougher, even if they don't. Today is December the 19th, 2014. This is episode 1488 of the Survival Podcast. And you know what day it is? It's Friday, Friday, Friday. And this is actually the last time... Uh, in real time anyway, or in uh, new episode format anyway, that you will hear Friday, Friday, Friday on an episode of the Survival Podcast for 2014. Here's how it's going to go after today. On the 22nd on Monday next week, I will put out for you a typical Monday show, and I will also do a typical show for you on uh, December 23rd, and that will be whatever it will be. I haven't decided yet. In fact, I'm going to let you guys have a Christmas present. If you come to the, uh, the show notes for today's show, again, 1488, and tell me what you want Tuesday's show next week to be about, I'll do it on anything that gets the most requests. So it's up to you, but you got to do it in the comments section for episode 1488, and we'll figure out what Tuesday's going to be. Wednesday, we will play the traditional... Survival Podcast Christmas Special was just pre-recorded. It'll be set up and ready to go by Tuesday when I do Tuesday's show. And I am done for the year. I'm quitting for the rest. I'm quitting TSP for, for the rest of the year. I will be back with you on Friday, January the 2nd, 2015, because that's what I do every year. I shut down for this week, and I really spend this time with my family, and I really go into a true downtime mode. We don't travel. We don't go on vacation. We just spend time together. And I recharge my brain so that I come out in the next year ready to really roll. Um, I tell you that because I would like you to try to do some piece of that yourself. I know not everybody has the leniency that I do. But let me tell you, this did not start for me when I became an entrepreneur. When I was in the cabling industry, that was pretty much what every cable uh, contracting agency did. Uh, it was just that the customers did not have business going on at that time. Or if you did, you were making like triple time to come in and do cutovers while everything was shut down. It was just an industry thing, and I've kept it as something that I do. And uh, even when I worked for companies where they didn't do it, I generally try to take a few days off to try to extend this period between Christmas and New Year's and spend as much time with the, with the family as I could. I just think it's a great time of year to do it. And on the 24th, again, early in the morning, I will publish the Survival Podcast Christmas Special, and it might be something good to share with your family. I'm just saying. Uh, I also, at this point, am making a big point of this because of something that's here that's, that's once again in our faces that we really need to think about. Tick-tock, tick-tock, the clock clicks for us all. We are on that sliding scale. We are becoming more free and liberated, or we, we are becoming more oppressed. It is only two places that you can go in life. You can be more controlled by society or you can create your own systems of freedom and liberty. It's, it, it's not a static environment. If you're not working on it, it's being taken from you. The year is almost over. So take a good rest at the end of this year, but let it light a little fire under your butt. And let it remind you that if there was a giant jar of marbles in your house that represented every day you had left in your life, that we are rapidly approaching a time where a total of 365 of them have been spent. How'd you spend them and how will you spend the next 365? Little reminder, little jab from Jack there as we near uh, a great time of year, but also uh, the end of another year, 2015. Many of you, like me, were in high school in the mid 80s. Think back to 1985 
And think about the fact that it's now 2015 or just about to be. That really kind of puts it in perspective for you. Anyway, I've got a bunch of calls today, some really cool stuff. I've got two for the expert council. One is for Stephen Harris and the other one for John Pugliano. Remember, if you want to call in a, a question for a member of the expert council on a show like this, dial the same number for everybody else. 866-65-THINK, 866-65-THINK. Uh, but the additional step to take is email me. Email me at jack at the survivalpodcast.com. Put expert counsel in the subject line. And in your email say, I just called in a question for expert counsel member fill in the blank. And then from phone number, 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 so I can find it in the queue and get it over to the appropriate council member. Remember, in every Friday show, there's a list of our council members at the bottom of the show notes. You can read it and see all of the great guys you can ask questions for. I did have one today for Brian Black, but since I know the answer, I'm just going to answer it because he's busy is, is busier than I am right now this time of year, and we won't hear from him this year if I send it to him. Anyway, with that... Uh, Before I get to your questions, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsor. Sponsor of the day number one today, Western Botanicals. Western Botanicals is my choice for everything and anything herbal. If you give them a shot at your business, you'll see why, and they'll become your choice too. Check them out today, Western Botanicals. And if you need some help, it's not just a website. They're real people that really care about you. Pick up your phone. Give them a call. Uh, they will take your call. They will help you out. Uh, they also give a great discount membership away to members of the Support Brigade. This is their premium discount membership. If you found their site on your own and you bought that membership, you would get 25% off all their preparations for a whole year. That discount membership price is $50. Bucks, and uh, it'd be well worth it if you use a lot of herbals like I do. However, if you're a member of my Support Brigade, they give it to you for free. Completely pays for a full year of my membership just from that one benefit. They're great supporters and great suppliers. Check them out today, westernbotanicals.com. Uh, next up today, herbs of a different kind. Chef Keith Snow with Harvest Eating. Hey, Christmas is coming. You want to learn how to cook really cool stuff? Get over to HarvestEating.com. Check out the podcast. Check out the videos. Check out the blog. And check out the amazing selection of seasoning, spices, sauces, teas. All kinds of great stuff at HarvestEating.com. And if you don't think cooking is a prepper skill, well, friends, you've never served in the military and spent six months living on MREs. It gets old really fast. There's a whole slew of reasons why cooking is something you should add to your skills as a prepper and a modern survivalist. And uh, Chef Keith Snow will help you do that and teach you to cook seasonally and locally. On that note, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. Hey, Chef Keith will give you a discount on everything you buy if you join the Member Support Brigade. You get the uh, discount I already talked about from Western Botanicals. There's about 60 total companies that give discounts. Almost $200 worth of free ebooks. Uh, video content that's available nowhere else. I just published episode two of the Nine Mile Farmstead series today for MSB members. It's on the website. If you are an MSB member and you want to view that video, you can just go to, uh, to the video and, and watch it. And the disc, or the, uh, the access code is on the front page of the MSB. So as soon as you log in, you'll see in bold red right at the top the, uh, the, the passcode for all the MSB only videos on Vimeo. Uh, they are in HD. You can download them and do what you want, but please don't publish them elsewhere because, well, you're a paying customer and they're for you. That's just one of the things I do for MSB members. Check it out today. Again, uh, the survivalpodcast.com. Click on members to learn more and to sign up. Or if you're already a member, you'll see how to log in there. The additional thing is military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty, and prior service and first responders like EMTs, paramedics, and firefighters. All of you do qualify for a discount. Just email me before you join at jack at the survivalpodcast.com and put service discount in the subject line. Tell me about your service in one or two sentences. With that, let us look at the year that was the episode. The year is 1488. 
Number one, the discovery of the new world. I thought that was 1492. Oh, wait, we'll, we'll learn all about that in a little bit of time. The next one is the Royal Netherlands Navy and military surplus. And the third segment for this year, Joseph Cairo and modern Judaism. I am going to read the discovery of a new world because I think it's a very interesting one. The new world is discovered at last. The Portuguese explorer Bartolo Madejes has rounded the Cape of Needles at the southernmost tip of Africa. For orientation, the Cape of Needles is a little over 100 statute miles north southeast of the Cape of Good Hope. As Diaz rounds the Cape, it is clear sailing to the New World, India, but his crew wants to go home, so they travel northeast to Bushman's River Mouth, where it becomes clear they have rounded the southernmost part of Africa. With that feat accomplished, they erect a monument which remains to this day. My take by Alex Shrug. Even though the Portuguese have reasonable maps of the areas around Yemen and India, they think of rounding the Cape as a journey to the New World. By new, they mean new to them. It is not even totally new since they have been to India overland, but rather it is a new view or a new way to get there. Discovery means more than uncovering something totally unknown, more it is a different way of looking at something ahead familiar. For example, by tradition we say that Sir Isaac Newton discovered gravity, yet if gravity hadn't been there the whole time, most of us would have floated off the earth before we had a chance to grab something to hang on to. What really what Newton really discovered was a different way of understanding gravity, a new way to look at it that opened up a whole new world of thinking about the universe. By rounding the Cape, what the Portuguese discovered was the voyage was possible. They proved it could be done, and that something and that was something new. I think there's a, a, a different way to look at this too. Four minute mile. What? The heck is he talking? Four minute mile. Okay, so when when no one had ever run a four minute mile, it was deemed as being impossible. It was the stuff of legends, and if it ever happened, it would be one super individual. Let me read you a little bit from Wikipedia on the four-minute mile. Breaking the four-minute uh, barrier was first achieved on 6 May 1954 by Englishman Roger Bannister with the help of fellow runners as pacemakers. Two months later, during the 1954 British Empire and Commonwealth Games hosted in Vancouver, British Columbia, two competing runners, Australia's John Landry and Bannister, ran the distance of one mile in under four minutes. The race's end is uh, memorialized in the statue of two, with Landry glancing over his shoulder, thus losing the race placed in front of the Pacific National Exhibition uh, Plaza. New Zealand's John Walker was the first man to run the mile under 3 minutes and 50 seconds. He managed to run 135 sub-4-minute miles during his career, during which he was the first person to run over 100, su uh, 100 sub-4-minute miles. And American Steve Scott has run the most sub-4-minute miles with 136. Currently, the mile record is held by Morocco's Hicham El Gra who ran it in a time of 3 minutes and 43 seconds and 13 hundredths of a second in Rome in 1999. In 1964, America's Jim Run became the first high school runner to break 4 minutes for the mile, running 3.59.0 as a junior, and then the American record, 3.55.3 as a senior in 1965. Tim Danielson, 1966, and Marty LeQuarrie, 1967, also came in under four minutes, but Run's high school record stood until Alan Webb ran 353-43 in 2001. Ten years later, in 2011, Lucas Verbakias became the fifth high school uh, under four minutes. I can keep going, but you just keep reading more and more people. So now the record is not who breaks four minutes, but how many times have they done it? You know, 135 times. By one person. 
Because once it was discovered that it was possible, it doesn't become just possible anymore. It becomes probable. And that's how something like finding a new passageway back in, in you know, uh, 1488 would be. It's one thing to know you can do it, but once to know exactly how it's done, and then ports be built along the way, and the intention be delivered, then it can open up amazing opportunities for trade. Uh, even with it taking as long as it did in going around the whole continent of Africa by building out an infrastructure. And a lot of the colonialism in Africa came from this on down the road as this continued to go. And part of the reason is how much weight a ship can carry compared to any other method of transportation uh, specifically known at the time. But even today, the, the, the largest ships, uh, what they can transport, uh, it, it pales in comparison to what an aircraft can transport. About the only method... Uh, of transportation that can compete with shipping for pure weight uh, based on the energy input is probably rail. But rail is quite limited. Rail goes where tracks are, and rail requires land. Uh, but there's a lot to be learned from the value of, of seaports. There's been wars fought, won, lost. The earth has changed its, its boundaries of nations over seaports. And we can see how valuable it is even for a prepper if you just look. If you have to uh, live in the wilderness for some reason, you would be well suited if you had some access to moving water, navigable waterway, and even something as simple as a canoe. Uh, it, it, when, when I've done some primitive camping in the past, the most enjoyable experiences I have had have involved river camping and using either a john boat or a canoe because you can take so much more with you. And uh, that's my take by Jack Spirico. Let's get into the main topic of today's show. I'm going to start out with something that usually I would reserve for Monday. But by, by next week, the fever around this is going to be so high-pitched that I want to be on record telling you it's coming before it happens, even though it's already begun. And I'm talking about the hacking of Sony Pictures, and then they're not going to show this stupid movie with Seth Rogen in it, and this other stupid movie is not going to be shown, and 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 North Korea has got these super hackers, and they're in league with China and Russia, and uh, I'm going to give you my thoughts on this. But first, I'm going to play a soundbite for you from Alex Jones's stuff, and this is not actually Alex. Uh, this is one of his uh, of his guys. And actually, one of his more sane guys, as far as I'm concerned, Paul Joseph Watson, and the the video is called "Sony Hack is almost certainly an inside job." I get on Alex Jones quite a bit because I believe that he takes reality and hypes it to the extreme and draws some levels of ridiculous conclusions. But I'll tell you what: when something's legitimate and it can be found, his group finds it and they bring it to light. And I think. I'm not going to say I completely agree with what you're about to hear, but I agree with the premise of it. And I think it's yet to be determined, and I think Watson even himself, you know, in conclusion states, it's not really clear exactly who did this. But here's the evidence, here's where it leads so far, and it doesn't matter, here's what they're going to do with it. So here you go, Paul Joseph Watson, this is from Infowars.com, I will include a link uh, to the actual article and video that goes along with it. Uh, so that you can view it on Alex Jones's website. Um, anything I say about Alex Jones should neither be taken as a complete and total eradication of all things Jones does, nor a wholesale endorsement. I think Jones, like many people in alternative media, brings a lot of really good things to light and then goes off in la-la land for whatever reason. In this case, though, I, I think that you're getting a much more 
clear, honest look at what's going on than you are from just about anywhere else in media, so I'm going to play it for you now. The U.S. government has stridently asserted that North Korea was almost certainly responsible for the Sony hack with no evidence whatsoever. Look at this New York Times headline. U.S. said to find North Korea ordered cyber attack on Sony. American officials have concluded that North Korea was centrally involved in the hacking of Sony Pictures computers. Now, if we actually had a real media in the United States, the headline would be something like, no evidence backs up U.S. claim that North Korea ordered cyber attack on Sony. But because this is the New York Times, which is basically a press release outlet for the White House, we get a headline like this. And it's actually not until halfway down the article that we read, it is not clear how the United States determined that Mr. Kim's government had played a central role in the Sony attacks. In other words, there's no evidence whatsoever to back up this claim. As Wired News' Kim Zeta reports, the evidence that North Korea hacked Sony is flimsy. Sony and the FBI have announced that they've found no evidence so far to tie North Korea to the attack. In fact, the only evidence that really does indicate anything is that this hack attack on Sony Pictures was an inside job. As TMZ reports, the people at Sony who are investigating believe the hackers had intimate knowledge of mail systems and their configurations. They also believe the hackers have knowledge of the internal media distribution systems and the internal IT systems, including human resources and payroll. And they're suggesting that there could be a link between the huge number of Sony layoffs that have taken place recently and an aggrieved employee that could have been responsible for this hack. The FBI also suspects that the hack was the work of a disgruntled worker, and that even though the Guardians of Peace group has taken responsibility for breaking into Sony's servers, the group had to have had help from someone familiar with the infrastructure. And after Sony announced yesterday that it would pull the movie The Interview from all cinemas, Paramount followed suit by announcing that Team America, which of course also insults North Korea, would be pulled from theatres nationwide. But amidst the myriad of accusations and theories as to who is responsible for this hack, be it North Korea or some kind of inside job by a disgruntled employee, here's what they're not telling you. The two previous cyber attacks that caused anywhere near the alarm created by this Sony hack were done by the US government. When Alex Jones accused the United States of being behind the Stuxnet virus attack back in 2010 in order to grease the skids for draconian cybersecurity measures, he was labelled a conspiracy theorist. Two years later, it emerged that the US and Israel were almost certainly responsible for the attack. And again, we saw the same thing with the flame virus aimed at targeting Iran's nuclear program. It was a conspiracy theory to blame this on the United States and Israel. Lo and behold, the Washington Post subsequently reported US-Israel developed flame computer virus to slow Iranian nuclear efforts. But of course, at the time, the blame was solely pinned on foreign actors like Russia, just as it is being pinned on North Korea now with the Sony hack. In order to justify draconian cybersecurity measures, like the ones that Joe Lieberman called for, in giving 
the White House the same power as China to censor and shut down the Internet. So what do we see now with the Obama administration saying that North Korea is responsible with no evidence whatsoever, that this is a national security matter and that it reiterates the fact that Congress should pass the cyber security bill. So now we see this being exploited. Politicians respond to Sony hack, call for cyber security bill. Cyber security legislation that has repeatedly stalled in Congress is now looking set to get the green light in the aftermath of this Sony hack. John McCain said in a statement, Congress as a whole must also address these issues and finally pass long overdue comprehensive cybersecurity legislation. And just by coincidence, Obama State Department official Catherine Novelli was meeting with China's internet censorship czar. This is the guy overseeing the great firewall of China, the infamous government censorship program over the entire web. She was meeting with him at an event in Washington, urging cooperation on cybersecurity between the United States and China. While, of course, the Obama administration moves to reclassify the Internet under the Telecommunications Act, making it susceptible to FCC control, greasing the skids for government oversight and regulation of the web. So isn't it convenient that Right at the time the cybersecurity legislation is stalled in Congress, as the Obama administration shows its desperation to regulate the Internet, now we have this convenient Sony hack that can be used to grease the skids for tightened control. But what do you think? Am I a conspiracy theorist for even daring to suggest this premise? Just as I was labelled a conspiracy theorist for saying the US was behind Stuxnet and Flame, which later proved to be the case, or do you think that this is the work of a disgruntled employee, the work of a foreign actor like North Korea, or is a wider conspiracy afoot? Let me know what you think in the comments below. I'm Paul Joseph Watson reporting for Infowars.com. Hans Briggs, oh no! Great to see you again, Hans. All right. Um, I'll let that speak for itself mostly. I won't add a lot to that. I want to focus more on the timing of this with some other things that are going on and what you're about to see occur. So I, I, I do believe that this is some level of we did this to ourselves. I, I really do. Uh, it, may be, uh, it may be a disgruntled employee, But it's very, I know causational things. You can't just say because they occurred together, they're definitely linked. and You have to be careful of perception bias. Let me just say it's very suspicious to me that just a day after the president announces that we're going to renew uh, diplomatic relationship with Korea and the right-wing media goes into a tizzy of trying to link a nation like Cuba to a nation like North Korea or Iran, that this happens. That's just, it smells a little funny to me, but let's let it go. Except just, accept that it's funny. Okay? Accept that it doesn't, it doesn't jive. It, it, it's, it's possible that it's a coincidence. Uh, it may be even probable, but it's noteworthy that they, they came together. And they're going to be mashed together now like corn and potatoes on a Thanksgiving plate. 
and there's a lot that's going to go on. First of all, get ready for you and your friends to be used like idiotic puppets on Facebook and all other social media websites as meme after meme after meme making fun of Kim Jong-il and Kim Jong-un come out and things like, I'm going to do it and what can you do about it? And people making their own little versions of it and calling on Sony to put it out on demand video and protesting and petitions and all kinds of stupid shit. And... All of you that choose to participate in this, just go out to the store right now, buy yourself some good old freaking paracord, tie it to your hands, make yourself a little uh, X thing, and just go find a politician somewhere and say, I'm willing to be your puppet. Because that's what you're going to be. If you participate in this lunacy, no matter where it really came from, you're going to be part of the puppet show. Because that's what's coming, a puppet show. Watch every single Republican potential candidate for president come in about how we need to stand up and do this and stand up and do that and blah, 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 and not being intimidated. And what about the American spirit? And even the left-leaning liberal idiot media people, the John Stewart's of the world, pile onto that and go, I agree with them for once. And at the same time, the Ass Clowns administration trying to get this cybersecurity legislation through and Republicans taking pieces and parts of it and saying, the president has not done enough, even though they will be technically stopping him from doing what, so that they can give you the, the, the good solution when they finally take over to protect you from how dangerous Kim Jong-un is because he can hack Sony Pictures' videos. Huh? And puppet show, puppet show, I'm telling you, if you participate in this, just bind your hands and feet, make up a freaking marionette thing for yourself, and go find a government official to run you. Because this is how you're going to be run now. This all ties in with what I've been telling you for years. I've been telling you for years that this presidency will go into a decline toward the end, and now we're here. We've hit the midterms. We're done. What you've witnessed with this presidency... It's a guy that, that nobody thought would get anything done, ever, even though everybody was afraid of him. A guy that they thought would fight like Mr. Magoo in the prize fight, that got in and moved like Magoo, but fought like Muhammad Ali. Right? Got everything he wanted done. Everything. And got, and had his supporters stick with him through screwing them over time and time again. The media gave him cover fire, but he actually had an air of competency to him. Now, I know if you oppose him, you're thinking, no, he didn't. No, you didn't like what he did because you opposed it, but he was competent in getting it done. He said some stupid shit, but nowhere near the level of stupidity. This is now, in an eight-round match, the longest two-round dive that you will ever see take place in modern history. This guy will look dumber by the month, dumber at some point by the week. It will be a tailspin, an unending tailspin, and it's not unintentional. He is not as stupid as he's about to look. He really isn't. This is all the planet of the oligarchs, okay? This is leading you. All this puppet show nonsense where you're being led around and you're posting memes and I did this and I'm not going to let Kim Jong-un tell me what video I can watch. <sighs> this is your government getting ready to install, where Watson is right, a completely oppressive 
a completely oppressive totalitarian oversight of Internet and Internet activities. Beyond what they've already done, they do want to turn it into a public utility, and then they want to be able to tell people like me, I can't say shit on the air anymore because somebody might be offended by it. Well, here's my opinion. If you're offended when I say shit, turn it the hell off and don't listen. I've run it that way for six years now. I think we can keep going. right? But they want to control every single piece of your life. And your fellow Americans are on a track to beg them to do so. Every bit of individual sovereignty right now is slowly being handed over to the state. And I'm telling you, I know you don't believe this, but you watch this, guys, last two years. By the time this is over with, he will make the legacy of Jimmy Carter look good. That's how bad it's going to be. That's how incompetent this individual is going to look. And it's you have to ask yourself, no matter how much you don't like Barack Obama, no matter how much you hate him, no matter how much you oppose him, has he not looked like a bigger idiot in the last four months than the previous five and a half years? And if you're honest, if you take away your bias and your animosity and your anger, and you pull back like a logistician and use nothing but logic, and you look at what's been said and done for the last four months, the ineptitude in handling every single quote-unquote crisis that came before Most of them were manufactured crisis. They didn't just manufacture the Ebola crisis. They manufactured the incompetence of the Obama administration in response to the manufactured crisis. They didn't just manufacture the ISIS threat. Okay, ISIS, ISIS, where is it now? Where is it? You heard nothing but ISIS leading up to the election. When is the last time you really heard heavy news coverage about ISIS? Right Now, is it because we, we went in and bombed them and we're headed for victory? No, because they would be trumpeting that because it's all bullshit. The reality is the American people and our attention span is becoming shorter and shorter and it's becoming harder and harder to keep us scared of boogeymen. So they realize that this ISIS thing is not doing it. It's not doing it for them. They need somebody really, really scary. And this little tyrant, this little crazy guy in North Korea, he's a tyrant. Now, you got to think about how stupid we are in the way we handle things like Cuba and like North Korea. Let's talk about the two of them separately for a second, and then I'll talk about real quick before we move on with your calls about how they're going to be mashed together. So North Korea is an isolationist nation. It is very important to the people of North Korea that are running North Korea anyway that they are self-sufficient. They don't need anybody. And our, our our national and international policy toward North Korea has been one of isolationism. We will isolate you. We wish to be isolated. Okay, fine, we'll isolate you. We will be isolated. Okay, we're isolating you. You learn from that. I will be isolated. You will be isolated. I will be... I mean, it's just nonsense. You might as well take a fish and throw it in a pond to teach it a lesson. It's completely nonsensical. Korea is going... You... It's, 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 it's mind-numbingly stupid. Now, let's look at, at Cuba. Cuba is so evil. It's so horrific. Oh, my God. We buy more garbage from China than any other nation in the world, and they are at least as totalitarian, at least as abusive to, to human rights, and as least as socialist communist as Cuba is. In fact, I would say they are tenfold more on every count. If you watch, the, they did show some videos in Cuba 
of Cuban students marching in the streets with the announcement that we're going to normalize relations with them. And they look like they're processing, but they're not. They're celebrating. These do not look like oppressed people. These do not like people, look like people that are swimming for the shore of the United States across the ocean. I'm not saying it's a great place to be. I'm not saying I want to go live there, but I'm saying it ain't what you've been told. And guess what? Do you know how many other nations have our stance with Cuba? None. You want a Cuban cigar? Go to Montreal. You can have all you want. Go to Mexico. No problem. France, Britain, Germany. No freaking problem. All the Cuban rum, Cuban cigars you want. Cuba's basically exported three things into the world over the last 30 years. Rum, cigars, and doctors. Cuba is not a poster child for what is great in the world, but they are not the great Satan. They are not equivalent to Iran the way that they're trying. And now what they've done is they've taken this and said, North Korea did this along with Russia and China. You have no proof Korea did it, North Korea did it, but you're going to lump in <laughs> this Chinese-Russian access. And then somehow you watch the Limbaugh's, the Hannity's, All of these guys and the local right-wing talk radio guys are going to grab on to Cuba with this in every way they can to prove the president is reckless and dangerous. When if I was president of the United States, I would have I would have normalized the relationships with Cuba like that fast. Cuba's been begging. Cuba sent a message to Bill Clinton through Lee Iacocca in 1996 that was basically this: You tell us. What we need to do to fix the relationships between our countries, and whatever it is, we'll do it. And the response was, piss off. Not, we'll do it if. No, like it was an open, read, where have all the leaders gone by Lee Iacocca. Get the truth about these things before you just believe them. But no, 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 no. The majority of the people in this country are going to go through a marionette show for the next two years. And they are going to cheer on the next president as he does everything Barack Obama wanted to do and could not. And the people that have opposed it the most harshly will cheer it when it occurs. And your talking head media will cheer it on as it goes. And my only advice to you is, is I can't tell you how to fix it. I can't tell you how to stop it because there's too many stupid people in this country now. The dichotomy is too perfect now. All I can tell you is be aware of it. Cut the strings and don't be their damn puppets. Let's go ahead and take your first call today. Hey, Jack. This is Anthony from North Carolina. I was wondering what your thoughts were on buying land for homesteading near military bases. I'm looking to buy land near the North and South Carolina border east of Charlotte. As you may know, this area is pretty much directly between Fort Bragg and Shaw Air Force Base. Do you see any downsides to living this close to multiple military facilities? I'm just wondering what your thoughts are, Jack, and have a good one. Well, of course, if you go to hideoutinthehillsurvivalist.com or whatever the hell it is, like, oh, my God, no, never, never, never be near military bases. That's where the Illuminati and the New World Order is going to come from and blue helmets and take you all to concentration camps. Don't you know that? Um, you know, I look at it a little bit differently. If we ever get into that problem, how close you are to a military base isn't really going to be the, the deciding factor whether or not you have to deal with the problem. I also look at it this way. 
Over the last five and a half years, almost six years now that I've been running the Survival Podcast, I've run into countless, countless incidences of individual personal liberties and community-level liberties being taken away when it comes to homesteading, people being oppressed for gardens, people having their pigs taken away. I mean, you, you can't even make this up. It sounds so preposterous that someone would actually show up to see somebody's pigs, but yet we've seen it occur. We've seen countless attacks on small farms and, 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 and what have you. We've seen countless attacks on individuals. We've seen little kids shut down from running lemonade stands. We've seen so much go on that our government is doing to oppress the freedoms and liberties of its citizenry that I believe right now that if Jefferson and Washington were alive, the founders would have AK-47s and be headed for D.C., I really do. I don't think the founders would tolerate the shit that we're tolerating as a nation for a millisecond. But you know what? You know how many of those things have been done by United States military personnel? None. None. I'm much more concerned about the Department of Environmental Resources or the, the DNR or the agricultural organizations or the FDA or the local police department or a, an HOA or a POA. I am concerned about all of those things in relation to oppressing my ability to live my life the way I choose long before I'm worried about the Army, the Navy, the Air Force, and the Marine Corps. And in the end, I believe that those men are actually the last hope that we have. Those men and women are the last hope that we have if this nation is ever to be re, re, you know, reclaimed from the people that control it today and are destroying it today. And I don't see it being done through uh, a violent revolution successfully. What I see happening is if eventually you get to a point where the military just says, no. That's the hope. Did they just, the military just goes, no. Not doing that anymore. But we said you had no. I'm not saying it's going to happen, but I'm saying it's a hell of a lot more likely than the the, the 82nd Airborne is going to maneuver out of Fort Bragg to shut down your homesteading operations. But Jack, what if there's a military invasion? Won't they target the military bases? Maybe. I actually think if I was trying to strategically invade this country, that I would try to avoid our military, not cut and confront them in a in a in a you know a dead blow to blow uh, confrontation. And I'm not really worried about this country being invaded. Now, when you still have the capacity to irradiate the entire planet and destroy all life, including your own on planet Earth, it's not so likely that people are going to invade your nation. And when your your people still do have the freedom to keep and bear arms, and any invading force would know, you, you're, you're going to run into a lot of rednecks that might start taking uh, bets on who can hit you at 800 yards or more. Uh, there's probably not a good place to invade. What about nuclear missiles? Well, if nuclear missiles come, we're all screwed anyway. Okay? What about an EMP? It has nothing to do with a military base, even though I think that it's such an overblown threat that I don't even want to talk about it. I just would tell you that all of the concerns that people have about military bases, I don't to a degree. Here's where it changes. I would not border, I would not buy land that borders a military installation. I think there's all types of federal regulations that could end up being applied uh, selectively whenever anybody, whether it be the military or somebody else, wants to interfere with what you're doing. Uh, so I, I would say I'm not going to try to avoid any sort of proximity, but I would try to get at least, you know, 
two or three miles of distance between the border of the installation and the property that I owned, just because you're talking about federal land and federal land practices that could in some way be annexed or applied and are more likely if you're on a border with them than, than, than otherwise. Uh, it also might make it more likely you might cause some kind of a ruckus if you're out playing airsoft with your buddies or something. I'm not saying you're going to, but it, it, it's possible. But I would just avoid, bo avoid bordering uh, military installation or any federal land. Um, though I have to say I'd be highly tempted if like national forests, state forests, things like that. But that I, I'd have a little bit of concern with too. Uh, five years ago, not as much as now. Um, and I would be much more likely to buy land that bordered a state park or state forest or uh, some sort of state-controlled land than federal land. The federal government is completely out of hand with regulations at this point, and they're not going to stop anytime soon. But other than that, you know, direct bordering proximity or being in a, a belt within a couple miles around the border that could later be annexed, I, I wouldn't worry about it going with your life and buy what works for me. Uh, that's what I would do. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack, this is Brian from Dallas. had a question on chickens. In order to be at least somewhat sustainable on raising meat chickens, since meat chickens you can't breed and they're hybrids, what breeds would you need to have to breed together to get, like a Cornish Cross or a Red Ranger or something along those lines? Thanks for the help, Jack. Well, there's a lot of moving parts in there, and I, I don't want to come down hard on the collar. I don't, I'm not coming down hard on the collar. I just want to make sure I'm prefacing this with saying uh, it, it's not about the collar. It's about the uh, the mentality of things and how we need to change some of the ways we look at things. The, the, the short answer is you're just probably not going to do it in the way that you're asking it. I did notice that you couched it a little bit there with reasonably sustainable because here's the reality unless you're growing all the food for your birds and your 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 connotation of sustainable means that you're self sufficient uh then then you're not sustainable by your own definition if that makes sense what is the difference in buying you know uh if i'm doing a large meat run a thousand pounds of feed for that nine week period uh or buying uh, uh 200 chicks They both come from somewhere else. I depend on somebody else for both of them. So if sustainable means I do it myself, and it doesn't, by the way, then the answer is if you want to grow Cornish crosses or Dixie rainbows or Red Rangers as you buy them from a supplier uh, and get that exact type of a result, you're probably not going to do it. It doesn't mean I can't tell you some ways to do some other things that get you closer, but it's not going to happen. Let's start with Cornish Cross. You would think, by the way, they're just called a Cornish Cross, that you could do something like get a Cornish and a Cornish bird and a, and a, a barred rock, for instance, and cross them, and those babies would be the center knot. Um, there's four primary breeds in the Cornish Cross lineage, and the parent and grandparent birds that result in the bird you actually get are from very long lines of very selective breeding by people who have gone to school and have PhDs in biology and have been doing this for 40-plus years now. Uh, the homesteader is not going to produce a crossed bird uh, that, that can compete with the growth and the size and the development and, the and honest to God, the meat quality of a Cornish cross bird. You're just not going to do it. Uh, it doesn't mean you can't be sustainable with meat in some other ways, I'm just saying, or even somewhat more self-sufficient with meat. See, I'm doing it myself there, but you're not going to make a bird like that. 
So Cornish Cross, off the table. If you want them, you buy them. Let's talk about, now Dixie Rainbows and Red Rangers are pretty damn similar birds. Uh, I think it's a marketing difference based on looking at them. They, they look almost identical to me. I believe that if you were to do a straight run of Red Rangers, and you were to keep a cockerel and some hens out of that, and breed them, that I cannot see the offspring birds being little. I just can't see it. I don't know how long they'll take to put the weight on. I haven't talked to anybody that's ever done it. But it would be a fun, low-risk experiment. Um, get as many as you want to do for your meat run. Uh, add 20% to it. Pick a really good-looking rooster or two tractor them with some hens they they do not have a problem making it you know into a second season they breed they lay I kept two hens and they laid eggs I did hatch some I'm not sure who's what out of them but they were crossed with a Rhode Island rooster uh, one of the two uh, we think a predator got she just disappeared one day And the other one, uh, I'm pretty sure the geese murdered. I don't know what she did, but I think, they, and I have had two birds, I think, murdered by the geese. And I'm going to use the word murder. I mean, that's what it came down to. Uh, I walked over one day, and she was laying dead in the mud, and one of the ganders was just, I mean, like you could tell she'd been there a while, and he was just still hammering the hell out of her. So I don't know what she did to set him off, and I, it's not like they go around murdering my chickens all the time, but... I think this one got murdered. I think the one that got taken by a predator, they're so big and slow, she was just probably with a group, and when whatever came, came, she was the last one to get away. But they laid eggs. They were, God, they were seven, eight months old. Uh, no, they were older than that. They were like nine, ten months old by the time the second one disappeared. Or when the geese killed her, I guess I should say. Because the first one disappeared, then the geese murdered the other one. Almost a year. She was fine. She, I mean, she's just a big old bird. She laid a little bit smaller egg than I would have expected, but she was pretty awesome. So I think if you got Dixie Rainbows or Red Rangers, you're not going to get the same thing when you breed them, but I think you're going to get a reasonable meat bird, and you'd have to do it to see. The best dual-purpose bird for meat, and it was the most popular bird produced for poultry meat, for chicken meat, in the country until the rise of the Cornish Cross was the Delaware. And the Delaware is a good old heritage breed. It is not going to have the big old giant jumbo double breasts, uh, but they finish in a relatively reasonable period of time, and they would not make a good market bird, but for homestead use, they would probably be the best you could do. Okay, So those are the two areas I would look at to try to be more self-sufficient, but don't Fool yourself into believing it's sustainable, right? Because you're still having to procure most likely feed. Now, you can do a lot to grow some feed, but in my experience, unless you have a lot of land and you're doing a relatively modest poultry flock, chickens are almost impossible to really keep healthy without bringing inputs in for them. Even when Lawton came up with the chicken, tr chicken tractoring method of producing eggs, not meat, eggs without grain. He was still doing it with an awful lot of vegetable scraps and things and beyond what they were producing at the PRI. And if he's bringing in inputs, then you're probably going to as well. So I think that chicken can be you know, on a big piece of land with food forestry and a lot of other like native forests and forage can be done on a very small grain bill 
And if you're big enough, you in theory be producing some of that for yourself. But in general, I think keeping chickens involves a responsibility to procure food for them. Even Joel Salatin spends an awful lot of his budget every year uh, buying grain for his birds. And it's just because one person can only do so many things. And this is where we have to get from self-reliant, self-sufficient, and sustainable and put them in two different world, worlds. What makes a chicken production system sustainable is is the, the grain or whatever feed product is being procured for them, is that being produced sustainably? You don't have to do it yourself for it to be sustainable, right? So we have to separate those two. Now, if I wanted to tell you what I think the most easily propagated, self-sufficient return of investment for meat is from poultry. I know a lot of you are going, quail, quail. No, it would be ducks. A adult duck that will finish in about 14 weeks and do an awful lot of foraging to put that weight on produces a carcass that will produce about as much meat as a a small meat chicken or a big homestead chicken. It is a higher quality meat. It would cost you more money to buy it. If you go price a duck, I mean, they're, they're in the they're in the freezer section right now, uh, more than usual because a lot of people do ducks and geese for Christmas dinner. Go price one. Go price a seven or eight pound duck, dressed out, and see what it costs. Um, and and then look at a chicken. So from a return of investment on the premium quality of a meat, and from the sustainability of a bird that can look after itself. I think a duck outplays a chicken every day. Now, I know some of you, you've heard my geese in the background. You've seen the geese in the video. Jack, what about geese? This is the issue with geese. Geese only lay for about a 60-day period. Their hatch rates are not very high. I think if you have a one-and-a-half-acre pond and a you know, couple dozen acres or more and you can buy you know five, six dozen geese, raise them up and let them go and just let them be and harvest whenever you feel like it, that over time that system will balance itself and it will become highly sustainable and you'll have a new group of geese to harvest young geese every year. Every year, no problem. And they'll take care of themselves and they'll look after themselves and they will forage their asses off. I think for a small homestead like I have, it's very difficult in my experience over two years because you only get that one window. And when you bring a flock in, your new gooses, right? So in geese, it's like ducks. A goose technically is a, is a female bird, and a gander is a male bird, okay? So you got gooses and ganders, okay? In ducks, you have ducks and drakes, right? Even though we call them all ducks. Your, your gooses, right, they have a hard time that first year when they go broody, understanding, and knowing what to do. And our girl, number five, she took... I'd say she went through 75% of her eggs just laying them and leaving them with no understanding of pulling feathers and going broody and things like that. And we tried incubating some and they don't really, they're not that effective of a breeder the first time around. And if you look at the price of goslings, you'll see number one, they're expensive. And number two, they sell out really fast. That said, if you want highly productive meat, in the shortest period possible, get a large, good quality meat breed of goose, buy as many as you want to produce every year, buy them, 
and tractor them on grass. Give them as much feed as they want to go with it. But I'm telling you, they will put weight on from grass like you cannot believe. And in 11 to 12 weeks, you're butchering birds that are you know 11 to 12 pounds. You're talking about the when you average out the aggregate gain over a 12-week period, about a pound a week. I don't know any animal that when it comes to production level, with ease of production, can compete with the goose. But the breedability is not there. So I would say Delaware chickens for a homestead chicken if you want meat. I've said Buff Orbington's before. I've tried it. I don't think there are any... I think they're a bigger pain in the ass actually clean than a Rhode Island Red and no bigger. Uh, or just go with your you know coals and, and just accept you're going to have smaller birds. Try the Dixie Rainbows or the Red Rangers and try breeding them and see what happens. Who knows? Forget the Cornish Crosses. Buy your birds. Most sustainable is ducks. Most quick gain of meat gain on grass is geese. Let's uh, let's take another one. Hi, Jack. This is Alan down in Houston. I have a question about permaculture that could possibly uh, turn into a tip for the audience. I wanted to get your opinion on uh, a strategy for inoculating legume seed. I was uh, planting a small section of food forest, and uh, just before I'd watched uh, Jeff Lawton's video on establishing a food forest, I saw him uh, inoculating some legume seeds, some clover and uh, cowpea and whatnot, with a uh, little bag of uh, inoculant that had been purchased, and it was uh, bound up in some peat moss. And the uh, I didn't have any of this myself, but while I was out actually uh, planting my seeds, the idea struck me that, hey, I'm... Uh, soaking these seeds in water, and I have some uh, leguminous species in my yard already that are, already have the uh, nodules on the roots. Um, why not try to uh, try to use those nodules that already exist in my yard to uh, inoculate the water that I was soaking the seeds into? Uh, and uh, that's what I did. I, I just kind of uh, broke up the roots, uh, mashed them as much as possible, let them soak in there for an hour or two, and uh, hopefully there will be some results. And obviously this means that I've already got the correct bacteria present in my native soil, but uh, maybe that will increase the concentration of it where the uh, seed smell and uh, increase the likelihood and the speed at which they're inoculated. Uh, let me know what you think about this. Uh, it's kind of an interesting idea. Thanks. Bye. Well, in many cases, the answer is it depends, and this is one of those cases. So you can certainly do that. The question is why, if you're going to plant into the same space. So if you were just going to continue and, and, and sow seed into the same location, no need if, the, uh, if, if they are indeed compatible. And I'll get to compatibility in a minute. So if you were going in and putting, let's say, a summer crop of something like a cowpea into a place uh, where you had something like a vetch, uh, when you look at inoculants, you usually see a pea and vetch inoculant are the, the same strain, uh, and it would probably be okay. But there's plenty of bacteria and activity in that soil, assuming that when you pull up some of your vets, you see nodules, right? So that that would not be necessary unless you were planting it somewhere else. You're trying to infuse, and what you're doing will work to a degree, uh, to a degree. 
because you're simply exposing it to this bacterium where when you buy it, it's been propagated. It's been put in optimum conditions to multiply, where you're just kind of exposing it to some and then hoping it'll multiply when it gets to its new home, if that makes sense. The other big issue you have is different legumes have different species of bacterium that they have these relationships with. It's not the same. You'll find one type for things like clover, another type for pea and vetch, Uh, and you'll find another type all together for soybean. Soybean uses a, a, a bacterium that's not even uh, native to North America, as you might imagine, given that soybeans are not native to North America. They're an Asian crop. Um, so the need for inoculation goes down over time as legumes of certain species are propagated over and over again in an area because the bacteria become normalized to the area. But it's always beneficial. I agree with Jeff Lawton, though. It's so cheap that especially when you're doing something like cover cropping uh, or large-scale cropping or trying to repair a landscape, a couple dollars worth of inoculum using the slurry method, which is my preferred method, and I'll talk about that in just a second, is so worthwhile, why not do it? Now, the slurry method is we take some water, We put our peas or beans or whatever in there, and we dump our inoculum in there, and we mix it together with our hands. We scrub it like we're scrubbing it with this, this like peaty slime material. And, and immediately, these bacterium, and they're in there by the cabillion, right? and it's not even an exaggeration, right? begin to adhere themselves to the seed. They recognize, through whatever intrinsic uh, intelligence these bacterium have, that this is my symbiote. And, and they, they begin to attach themselves, and they're right there when those seeds then break, bud, and root, and begin to grow, and they, they begin to symbiotically relate with them uh, very, very quickly. And it's just a very cheap insurance policy. Uh, to and, and, and you're going See, if you plant these legumes without an inoculant, they will probably survive, and they will probably find enough, and eventually they will probably get going. This is like kick-starting them. Like you can start a fire without an accelerant, but it sure happens faster with a properly applied accelerant. But an improperly applied accelerant may do nothing, right? Or it may burn you, or it may actually make it harder to get a fire going. So that's how you have to look at inoculation of legumes. It's a properly applied situation where it acts like a, a good accelerant for starting a fire, except in this case we're growing a plant. So that's what I would say there. Uh, now, Uh, the other thing I want to say real quick, though, is a lot of your clovers can be purchased encapsulated in an inoculum. And with your smaller seeds, that's what I suggest. It's very hard to spread something like clover seed, with your, especially with your hands, and it's impossible with a machine to spread clover if it's wet. It's, it's tiny. It sticks to everything. It looks like you dipped your hand in honey and then put it in, in, in uh, sesame seeds or something. You just can't get them, and they stick and they bind together, and they don't spread nice. So your clovers and your smaller legumes, if you can get a, an inoculated nitrocote on them is what they usually call it, it's almost always worth the extra money. And you're usually looking at like 20 cents a pound in difference. And when you're paying four, five, six, seven bucks or more for clover seed, depending on the clover seed, the strain, the variety, whether it's organic or not, etc. That is so inconsequential to the, the total cost 
that it's worth paying for. Anyway, let's go ahead and take another one. And this one will be a question for expert council member Stephen Harris. So I'll play the question and I'll go straight to his answer and then I'll be back with another one I'll take. Hi, Jack. This is Chris from Florida, Gator Beagal on the forum. I have a question for expert council member Steve Harris. My question is about adapting a home battery bank system for use as a backup power source for my aquaponics system. Thanks to your show, Steve, on powering your house from your car, I averted disaster when my power went out for six hours recently. I was able to power my aerator for my aquaponics fish tank using my car and inverter. What I would like to do is have a battery backup already hooked up in case this ever happens when I'm at work. I would like to have a battery that stays connected to a smart charger all the time and an inverter that also stays connected all the time with the aerator plugged into it. I need a minimum of one aerator on backup, but I would prefer to have two. If possible, I would also love to have the water pump plugged into the system as well. The aerators are each 8 watts and the pump is 24 watts. I live in a rural area, so when the electricity goes out, it can be out for a long time. I would want the battery to be able to run the system for at least nine hours in case the electricity is out all day while I'm at work. Could you recommend what type of battery, charger, and inverter I should use for this setup if it's doable? Thank you, Steve and Jack. I love the show, Jack. You've made a tremendous difference in the lives of me and my family. Chris from Florida. This is Stephen Harris from the expert panel calling in to answer your question for you. Well, it's a complicated one, but I think I have an answer for you. You can't use a Schlumacher battery charger as a power source because if it sees more than two amps for 24 hours being drawn, it thinks there's a shorted cell in the battery, so it shuts itself off automatically. So it it won't, can't be used as a charger or a power source in, in this case. It's uh, a three-stage computer-controlled smart charger. In this case, it's a little bit too smart. Schumacher at this time is really the only intelligent three-stage computer-controlled battery charger that is available to us as of December 2014. Believe me, if there was a better one, I'd be telling you about it. But the Schumacher does the job, and it does it good, and it's available to you from Amazon and from Walmart. And for all you people out there, do not write to me and tell me about the NOCO Genius Chargers. Just because it has the word genius in it does not mean it's any good. They want over $350 for the same thing an $80 Schumacher does. It's an overpriced ripoff. If you're paying, an, <laughs> you're paying an extra $250 for the, for the word genius in it. Really. $350 for a 30 amp battery charger. You gotta be kidding. So anyways, Chris, using the standard stuff on the market, without going to a $1,000 or more renewable energy inverter, which is a complex thing, there really is no option for you. But for one. There is a company called Royal Power, and they make inverters that are both chargers and inverters all in one. And they power your load off the grid when the grid is up and working. And they then switch over to the battery and the inverter when the power fails. The lights blink, you know, um, if you have light bulbs plugged in, they will blink. It takes about a third of a second for the switch over. 
but it works and it'll work for you. So it's not like a computer UPS that switches over so fast the computer doesn't fail. If you had this hooked up to your computer, your computer would um, shut off first. But for lights and aquaponics and everything else, it works just perfectly. Now, I have purchased one of these. This is not something I'm just reading about and telling you about. I own one of these, and it's working every day. And I have had it for over two years, about two and a half, almost three years. I have a backup power supply at my mother's house for her nebulizer and her lights and basic functions. I had to upgrade her 10-year-old system that I made for her, and I just went with the Royal Power Inverter. All I had to do was screw on the terminals for the battery cables and plug it into the wall and plug in the lights and the inverter, and I was done. So far, it's worked really good. Now, I have this inverter, the Royal Power one, the exact one I'm using. you got to be careful because they do sell ones that don't have the automatic transfer switch in it, and you need the one with the automatic transfer switch. In it, I have it listed at the very top of the inverters section at www.battery1234.com. You can read my comments on it there. It's on Amazon, but it doesn't have the best feedback. But you have my experience to go on, so hopefully it'll be a good fit for what you need. It's $289, but remember, it's also a 20-amp charger as well. So it's saving you a hundred bucks there, and it's also a two thousand watt inverter, bigger than you need, but the it's the smallest one available from Royal Power. So it's like paying one hundred eighty nine bucks for a two thousand watt inverter, and then paying a hundred dollars for a twenty amp charger, which it's not too bad, especially since it's all built into one unit for you, and it's the only thing available to you, so you got no other choice. Your two aerators and water pump only draw 40 watts. This is not much, which is at 12 volts, this is 3.3333 amps, three and a third amps. So if you are on a budget, one Group 29 marine battery, uh, one Group 29 deep cycle marine battery from Walmart for less than $100 would power your system for 22 hours. However, I would suggest that you get two deep cycle golf cart batteries from Sam's Club. They're called GC2s and they are 6 volts each. Two of them will make 12 volts for you. That is a better deal and will really give you some backup power for the aquaponics and anything else you want to do. Now, you, congratulations. Really, really good work. I'm using your car and an inverter to power your aquaponics when your power failed for six hours. Way to go. You get a gold star on your forehead and all my, all that, all the praise I can give you. I'm happy that the how to power your house from your car class could be so, so beneficial to you. Which, for those of you listening, the how to power your house from your car class with an inverter is at solar1234.com. I did it with Jack. You can listen to it with one click. For those of you doing Christmas shopping and want something preparedness-oriented, I have 487 items listed, all with my personal descriptions and feedback on them, 
on all of the 1234 websites. To see my entire family of 1234 websites and everything I have done with Jack, please visit Stephen1234.com. And I hope everyone has a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Please call in some more questions. Thank you. Hi, Jack. I was just wondering what your thoughts or current or future experiments on homestead oil crops are, um, specifically for cooking oil. I've been doing some research, and I'm planning this next summer to to do some experimenting, and I was wondering if you had any any thoughts on that that you wanted to share? Um, perhaps Ben Falk would also be somebody who, who would have something to say on this if you want to talk to him. Um, appreciate it very much. Thanks. Bye. Your best bet is almost a hundred percent likely to be sunflower oil. And it may not be the oil that you really want, but it's probably going to be the best bet to get a yield from. In optimum, keep in mind, this is optimum conventionally farmed conditions. Um, a good oil variety of sunflower can produce about a hundred gallons of oil to the acre. A hundred gallons of oil to the acre. And that, that works. I mean, honest to God, if you lived in the subtropics to the tropics, you'd be better off producing oil from avocados, uh, or maybe oil palm, but, but you probably don't, like most of us don't. So that's going to be the, the best yield of oil that you can reasonably extract at your level. You might also consider like an oil seed radish, but that's not the best table oil. It's a good burning oil. Actually, uh, your, your various, certain various forms of daikon, the pods can be squeezed and pressed for oil and they make actually a good oil to burn. Um, but if you look at the work of the people that have done the most in the permaculture world trying to build farms into a full sustainability model, they almost always point to sunflower. And what Mark Shepard says is on a 100-acre farm, you probably could provide all the fuel you needed for a tractor from two to three acres of sunflower, which has some appeal. It, it has some appeal. You have to decide, do you want to give up that much land just to produce your own fuel? And then you have to decide, well, maybe you do if it's complete freedom, right? So a farm like that, 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 you know, other than its transportation off farm, basically could provide all its energy from the land. And it's interesting, Mollison in one of his writings, I don't remember which I read, stated almost the exact same figure. He said that most farms could provide their fuel requirements from about two acres of oil based sunflower. Uh, it turned into a biodiesel, basically. So I guess that would be the best place I could advise you to go. Here's the thing. You're not going to produce 100 gallons from an acre. If you said, I'm going to do a quarter acre, you're not going to produce 25 gallons. It may be very conceivable, though, that if we went down to a tenth of an acre of black oil sunflower or another oil variety of sunflower of your choice, and you did a tenth of an acre and a conventional field might produce 10 gallons with optimal extraction, that you might produce four or five gallons. 
And if you had the biomass and, and you used it for something or what have you, and you used the, you know, once you pressed it, if you used it as a feed, I guess you could use what's left of the, the, the seeds themselves as a feed uh, that would have a really reasonable protein requirement uh, for livestock. I guess it could be okay. I just don't know that I would, I would do it. There are other things that produce higher yields, but I don't think they're very much um, valid for you to be able to grow and actually extract. Uh, if you grow pumpkins, you can produce, with certain pumpkin varieties, 500 pounds of oil, pumpkin seed oil, 500 gallons to an acre. That's, I'm sorry, 57 gallons to an acre. That's, that's pretty impressive for something where you're still able to use the pumpkin flesh. I don't, I, I was reading a chart and it's 500 liters to a hectare. It's five, 57 gallons to an acre, but I don't know how reasonable it is for you to extract that. But the, the Styrian hullest pumpkins were always grown specifically for oil. That was the main reason they were grown is for oil. So you could take the seeds, you could extract them for oil. Since they had no holes, what was left over was good for your livestock, your, your seed meal. And the, the flesh of them, the, while they're not considered to be a really high-quality flesh pumpkin, you could feed the hogs or what have you. So it was this very multifunctional element that could be fit in between rows and things like that. Rapeseed, which is canola, and that may, might make you think, rethink whether you really want to eat it or not, uh, 127 gallons to uh, an acre. Uh, but I don't think it's as high quality in oil as sunflower oil, and it's not as easy to extract. Now, I've done some research for you, and I found an old article that gives you everything you need to know on how to grow and extract sunflower oil. And I'll put a link in today's show notes so you can look at that. Uh, I'm not going to discourage you from doing it, but I definitely say it might be something you want to take on a small scale and see if you can get a gallon of oil. And if you get a gallon of oil, then you have to look at all the work that went into that and say, is this worth scaling up to you know, 10, 20 gallons a year? And it might be, depending on how valuable it is to you and how valuable your space and your time is to you. Uh, but that's the best I can do for you on that one. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack, I have a question for Brian Black. I think it's for him anyway. It's about an NSA item. Suppose that I had a lot of money and I bought one of those fully automatic M16s on Gunbroker, $25,000 fine. I pay it, I pay the NSA stamp, and I have it legally. Okay, legally, the strip lower is the firearm. Let's say I took everything apart but that strip lower, and then I started adding more modern things, Magpul stocks and all this other crap. I put a short barrel and a suppressor on it, and I paid those NSA stamps and I'm completely legal. My question is, is that all legal? Is it now a legal, fully automatic, suppressed short barrel rifle? Can I do that? Thanks. I'm going to give my best shot at this one because I know that if I send this to Brian, you will not get an answer until probably mid-January. And I don't know if you'll get that because Brian goes to SHOT Show every year and he's getting ready for that. He's got the holidays and everything else he's doing. Um, and I, I think you'll get pretty much the same answer if you went off the cuff from him as you'll get from me. The, the technical answer would be, in, in no way should that be illegal. So uh, let's say I buy a fully automatic uh, M16 rifle with a Class 3 stamp. Yes, it is, it is not the upper uh, that makes it full auto. The upper is not the gun. It's just a part. If I then procure a stamp to 
uh, provide me with a Class 3 short-barreled upper, that stamp covers that upper when I put it onto any lower, as far as I know. Uh, do not take this as legal advice. I'm giving you my best shot here. I absolutely know for a fact, though, that if you get a suppressor with a Class 3 uh, stamp, then you are absolutely 100% okay with putting that on any weapon as long as you retain possession of it and as long as your Class 3 stamp is valid for that, that suppressor. So the suppressor is an absolute, under my understanding of the law, yes. I can't see how you could be prevented from putting an SBR upper on a, uh, a full auto lower if both of them had their own stamp. I, I can't see that. Now, why would you want to would be my bigger question. I actually think, first of all, that full auto weapons should be completely legal. I do believe that that's constitutional. I do not believe it's a slippery slope toward making cruise missiles and nuclear bombs legal uh, for, civilian, for civilian ownership. I think that the whatever is reasonable uh, to be looked at is individually carried deployable arms by a soldier or a militiaman, applies in our Second Amendment to the people as a whole. So while there might be a small military unit out there uh, with the ability uh, to carry some sort of tactical nuke, they cannot use it without authorization from higher level of command. A soldier is sent out with a machine gun, a submachine gun, uh, an individual arm, uh, even a, a small crew-served uh, machine gun with basic rules of engagement at that point can deploy as necessary on their mission. To me, that is the very definition of arms, um, and, and, and you know that doesn't work with M1 Abrams. right? There's, a, there's an awful lot of training before they let you get behind the wheel of an M1 Abrams. Basic training, they'll hand you an M60 with another guy that your gunner's mate, and you go out and do it. So to me, all of those should be legal. So what I say next is not my belief that no one needs that uh, or, or what have you. It's just my, my belief that it's not that practical. So if you were to join the Army or uh, the Marine Corps today or you know, the Navy and the Air Force to a lesser degree on, on riflemanship, uh, you will learn to use a rifle. And you will qualify with that rifle. And that rifle will be some sort of the A2 variant uh, or A3 variant, which will have a selector that will read safe, uh, semi, and, and burst, basically. And I, I don't know what it actually says today on the receivers because I've, I've not seen one of the N4, M4 carbines and actually in my hands looked at it, and I, I don't really care, but those are your three functions that that lever will go to. Uh, a safe function where the weapon will not fire, a semi-function where it will fire once every time pulled, and a burst function where you will pull the trigger and it will go bang, 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 it will fire a three-round burst. Uh, a full-auto weapon is designed to be fired in three- to five-round bursts, and the military over time determined that soldiers under stress would just depress the trigger and let everything out and would not be very effective. So the military has, in fact, other than specially trained soldiers who are specially trained, let's say, to be an M60 gunner or a saw gunner, said that the average infantryman is better served with semi-auto or burst. And you probably are, too, in just about any scenario you'd be in. So if you wanted the weapon for the purpose of it being a weapon, from a practicality standpoint... 
uh, for self-defense and tactical usage, I don't think there's an inherent advantage to going full auto. If you want it because you want it, right, the way that some lady down the street might want a full box set of Desperate Housewives on DVD, then by God, I think you should be able to acquire it. And if whatever legal steps you're willing to do to do that is fine. But I don't know that a full auto short barreled M16 is really that practical from a usage standpoint. But I'd sure like to go fire it with you. And as long as we're not in Washington where you've committed a felony by handing it to me now, um, you know, I, I would be happy to do that with you. Um, I would love to shoot one. I'd love to mess around with one. But I personally wouldn't go through the expense and, and, and long logistical requirements. I see much more tactical advantage in a stock-style, typical semi-auto SBR than I do in a full-auto uh, variant of either. Uh, the fun factor can't be denied, but the practical na nature of it is. So just understand, when I say something's not necessarily that practical, I don't mean you shouldn't have it. I'm not saying it shouldn't be legal. I'm saying from a standpoint of my investing of my money, I don't see it as being practical. Anyway, that's, that's my thoughts on it. But the, the suppressor is, is no doubt okay. Whether or not, you, and if somebody out there can help me out with whether or not the class two or class three upper can go on a class three lower, if I, the owner, have the stamp for both, I can't see that it wouldn't, but I can't guarantee you that it's okay either. Uh, let's take another call. Um, one little thing to add on why I'm not sure uh, before I go to the next one with uh, the, the lower and the upper. This is the one thing that has me up in the air about it. Uh, there's something called the Roni Carbine, which is designed, uh, one of the models anyway. You take a Glock 9mm handgun and you put it inside and it makes it basically an SBR. You do not need a Class 3 stamp to own and possess the Roni. You do not need it to own and possess the Glock. But And you can even possess them side by side. The ATF stance is when you take the Glock and put it into the Roni, at that point you have created an SBR. And it is now a new weapon, even though individually neither required the stamp. So I don't know, this is my one hang-up, is technically the, the, the installation of one to the other creating a, a third entity. I'm not sure. And would that entity require its own stamp? That's a lawyer's question or someone that's done it and, and gotten clarification from the ATF. Uh, now we'll go on from there. And the one coming up is a question for John Pugliano on uh, Roth IRA. So I'm going to go right into John's answer to that. And then I'm going to come back with another question that I'll answer to wrap up today. We'll, that will be about retirement from a different standpoint, a totally different standpoint. Uh, and uh, so here we go with the question and John's answer. Jack, this is Chris in North Texas. I have a question for John Pugliano or you. Um, I just started a Roth IRA, and my I'm looking at retiring in approximately 15 years, and I'm wondering if either one of you could talk on a basic investment strategy for that. Um, I just put it in. I put 100% in dividend-producing stocks. I don't have to get uh, actual fund names from you, but um, just an overall investing uh, strategy for, for uh say, a 15-year-out retirement, retirement date. So uh, I appreciate what you do. Thanks a lot. Hello, TSP listeners. This is John Pugliano from Investable Wealth answering Chris from North Texas' question about Roth IRAs. Let me just start off with the standard disclaimer that I'm not offering any investment advice or recommendations. Just going to provide Chris with some general information. 
Chris, from the way you framed your question, I'd say that you've been studying the subject and I think you're on the right track. I'd encourage you to keep learning more and heading in that direction. You mentioned recently opening up a Roth IRA. I think that's an excellent choice. I prefer those over standard IRAs and very much so over things like 401ks and 403bs. As to your 15-year outlook, I'm also happy that you're looking out towards the long term and just don't have short-term goals in mind. So if you choose the right investments, you could have a substantial nest egg in 15 years. You also mentioned dividend-paying stocks. Well, studies have shown if you're going to buy and hold over the long term, dividend-producing stocks are the best investment choice. Now, I will add a caveat to that. These studies that they conduct, generally they look at very long time frames. Most of the studies I've seen cited look at trends over, say, 80 to even 180 years. Obviously, that's well beyond the time frame of an individual investor. In your case, you're just looking at 15 years. So while stocks and equities can hold up very well, on average, over the long term, over 80 years, we know that over the short term, stocks can crash and burn, and it can take them more than a decade to recover. And we only have to think back to the decade between 2000 and 2010 to see that. If you remember, the early 80s were very turbulent. Most of the decade of the 70s, turbulent as well. Also keep in mind these long-term studies, they're sort of like studies in global warming. A lot of biases can creep in there. You can really manipulate the numbers depending upon when you start the clock. And as you can imagine, the people that are conducting those studies are also the people that are in the business of selling you stocks. So although I do think that for the long-term dividend-producing stocks are going to net positive results, just be advised. There's always risk. And none of us can predict the future. You briefly mentioned funds in your question, and I'm glad you're thinking more in the terms of funds as opposed to individual stocks. Since you mentioned that you just opened up your Roth, I'm assuming you don't have a lot of money in there yet, so that would be a good reason for you not to go into individual stocks. If you don't have a great deal of investment experience, again, I would not recommend you to go into individual stocks. So as far as looking at funds as a broad category, I would encourage you that if they're available to you, look at exchange-traded funds. I like those over mutual funds because they're easier to trade. They trade pretty much like stocks. They have very small spreads associated with them, and in most cases, they're very economical. The fees associated with those are, are oftentimes a fraction of what you'd pay in a mutual fund. So if you're not familiar with those, check them out. That's exchange-traded funds, commonly called ETFs. And to give you an idea of what I'm talking about there in terms of an ETF that would be focused on high-quality, good dividend-paying stocks, just as an example, obviously I'm not recommending this to you. I don't know your personal situation. But do some homework on a fund called SDY. That's Sierra Delta Yankee. It's an ETF that focuses on the S&P dividend payers. It currently offers a yield of around 2%. And as you would expect, it's invested in, you know, the big stodgy dividend-paying companies. AT&T, Consolidated Edison, Target, McDonald's, Kimberly-Clark, you know, companies like that. Most importantly, Chris, I'd encourage you, though, to keep doing your homework. These first five to ten years that you're going to be funding your Roth, you'll probably find that because you're starting with a small amount of money, it won't be growing that much. But that's when you should be getting your education. It's going to be those last five years when the amount of money is larger, that the compounding is really going to kick in. So do yourself a favor over that period of time, invest in your own education, do your homework, learn about investing so you can make the right decisions as your money grows and hits critical mass. Chris, thank you for your question. If you'd like to learn more about wealth building principles, check out my podcast. It's called Wealth Setting and it's available in all the normal places. And for the expert counsel, this is John Pugliano. Hey, Jack, this is Mike from Indiana. I was calling today about a uh, question about growing timber crops and other trees as a plan for retirement. Uh, was curious on your thoughts is using things such as walnuts that may last, may take uh, several years to grow out to a timber crop 
uh, supported by what kind of support species you might choose to use in a situation like that? Um, is this something that's even uh, reliable or feasible to do uh, as a plans for retirement? Uh, some of the background is um, currently in southern Indiana. Uh, we have pretty good conditions for growing lots of deciduous trees around here. I'm pretty close to the Hoosier National Forest, um, so we can grow lots of trees and big trees. Uh, not many sequoias, but just about anything from there down. Um, just curious of your thoughts. Appreciate it. Thanks. Yeah, um, let's take a look at this a little bit different. I, I think that what has happened is over the last couple of years, uh, some financial analysts here and there have decided to come up with some talking points, uh, talking up timber and agricultural land, and for good reason, but they tend to oversimplify things. So one of the things that, that these people would do is talk about things like, well, you go out and buy a uh, hundred acres and plant it full of black walnuts and, uh, 30 years later this timber value is X and then you just sell the timber and keep the land and retire or sell the timber, then sell the land and then retire, you know, keep that as a retirement income or selectively harvest a certain amount of it every year of your retirement until it all runs out or, you know, whatever. Well, here's the problem. You don't grow a black walnut into a true harvestable timber tree in 30 years. In 30 years, you're thinning for veneer. Uh, I think people underestimate the size of a tree. I think at 40 years, you're pushing it. Under optimum conditions, you might have a timber crop, but in general, you're looking at a 50 to 70 years to a true full-size black walnut timber crop. Think about a tree like a black walnut. As it gets bigger, that bark is very thick, and then there's a certain amount that's a, a cambium, and then you have a certain amount of it that's not shaped right. So we have to mill it first into a square or a rectangle, and then we can mill lumber out of it. So there's a lot of waste when we mill a tree. And yeah, there can, some of that can be used for veneer and what have you, but in general, there's a lot of waste. So it's a very long-term proposition. So planting black walnut for retirement in some ways, it's about your children's retirement versus your own. Not a bad idea, but not something that's going to pay off for you. And most people, by the time they have the financial means to do something like this, you're sitting in your 40s to 50s. Use, not everybody. I mean, if you're 20, you might see some real money from Black Walnut if you get in the ground this year, right? But let's say you're 40, you're going to be 70. Those trees are only 30 years old. You're thinning for veneer. Right, you've planted a high density, and you're going to selective harvesting for veneer. But you're also producing a lot of nuts at that point. I think if you want forest farm forestry for retirement, we have to think a little bit differently. An overstory of black walnut, very, very interesting for the long-term wealth preservation of the family. So let's break down the wealth, the gain, and the income into sectors for where that money goes. When you talk to a financial advisor, you know, we just had a call on Roth IRAs, they'll often say, if you can help it, your Roth IRA money is your never money. They don't make you take it out, and you never pay taxes on it, so use it last. right? Try to leave it to your heirs if you can. All right? I mean, seriously, and you, know, you have, so you use this money here, and you put it in baskets. So let's look at that long-term horizon. That's your geriatric, you're in a nursing home money. right? Now, there's another way to do this I'll give you at the end, to go short-term and quicker. Okay, now, 
The next thing is, can we? So when you look at stocks, you look at dividends, like we just talked about with John. So you look at income streams. So there's one income stream from a stock, which is the stock's appreciation. I buy it for ten dollars a share. I sell it for twenty dollars a share. I double my money on an appreciation gain. Some stocks return a dividend to the shareholder. So if I get a ten percent dividend, which is unheard of, but let's say I got a ten percent dividend on a ten dollar a share stock, I would get a dollar. A year, so over ten years, I get the equivalent income to the stock doubling in price. If it does both, I do even better. Plus, the dividend goes up as the underlying value goes up. You got it? Now, how can we stack that type of thinking into forestry management? Well, what grows a hell of a lot faster than a black walnut produces a cash crop that's not generally thought of as agricultural and can be made into a very sustainable model. And and grows really well with black walnut, uh, black locust, black locust, black locust can be pollarded, which is like coppicing, but we do it high up instead of down low. And about once every five to seven years, we can go through and top black locust trees, get a huge firewood yield, and it's a very hot burning, dense, high quality firewood. It's a premium firewood. And if you've looked at what they sell a little bundle of firewood for outside of the store, and I'm not saying you're going to get that much for it, but it, firewood is a valuable commodity. It really is. So generally speaking, about a two-acre woodlot of black locust in a northern climate would provide a homesteader a sustainable wood yield every year. All the wood you would need for a wood stove, fireplace, cooking, everything, and then some. So if we did this across acres and acres and acres, we could be growing it with the black walnut and getting a firewood yield. And if we start the and so that's not a high maintenance system that requires a full time farmer to run. And then you also have this huge uh, yield of flowers for this brief period of time. And if we stack that in, there could be a honey business built into that. The locust would not provide the bees everything they need. It's too short, but it's a good tree while it's there. So you could stack other things in that are flowering. If this was all done with an understory of white clover in your climate, for instance, you got bee nirvana. So then, if if you had a beekeeper that you just gave the space to uh, that wanted to do sustainable beekeeping, and you charged him some sort of a lease fee for the area, or split the profits, and that way somebody. So I think you have to, if you really want this to produce a growth and income environment for you, okay, that you need to look at it more of a business. So how many other business units can you can you bolt onto this? If you're doing walnut, for instance, having the ability that when you do maintenance and pruning of the trees to mill out small pieces of select walnut for things like knife handles and stuff like that can create a, a cash flow. Is it huge? No, but it might be something that you could install someone that does that for you. Okay, uh, so that you have a return on the maintenance cost at least, because you're not going to have this be maintenance free. The only other way to do this, if you wanted to do it from a pure retirement, I don't want to jack with it. I want to plant it. I want to put it into uh, uh, a tree model. I want trees that are sustainable that do their own damn thing, and I don't want to do jack crap with it. And when I'm 60, I want money. Well, if you took relatively vacant or ill-managed land and planted it in a mixed forest, high-value timber crop of something like 
an overstory of black walnut with other high-value timber trees and high-value agricultural trees and high-value fuel wood trees like a black locust, they would still need to have some level of pollarding on those locusts to contain and manage and develop that, that resource, but it wouldn't be huge. And though the, the property is not ready to be harvested for timber, there is no doubt that another investor would see the realized gain in it. So right now, if you said, I want land that can have black walnut harvested from it in my retirement, I'd say then you need to find land that's got trees on it that are 30 to 40 years old. So that in 30 to 40 years, they're at 70 to 80 years old and they're ready for that selective harvest model when you're in your 70s in the peak of your retirement. So you'd have to go out and buy a piece of land that's in that's got 30-year-old black walnuts on it. Well, what do you think costs more? Right? So the the model to use for like that timber model for retirement, you have to understand what you'd actually be doing is selling the land to another investor who realizes they're going to wait 20 to 30 years on their return. So you can either do it with this growth and income model, like a growth and income fund with a mixed, diverse variety like a mutual fund on the land. Or you can do it with a heavy planning of, of low-maintenance overstory, but if you're going to get a retirement return out of it versus your kids getting a retirement return out of it, you're probably going to have to flip the property. Now, there could that be done so, you know, very slyly with five or six or seven properties? Some kept in the family, some flipped, some used as investment. For, you could do it's real estate. That's in the end. That's what you're looking at. You're looking at a a different type of real estate development is all you're looking at. Anyway, with that, I'm ready to wrap up today. Hopefully, I've got your mind flowing around that one. Uh, it's a very interesting model, and I think there's a lot of potential to develop wealth with 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 forestry and timber development and agroforestry in a real estate development model. But it's it's more complex than a talking head on Fox News for 30 seconds that tells you how much a black walnut tree sells for at maturity, with the problem being he doesn't know how long it takes for a nut to become a harvestable timber crop. Uh, is it possible that some hybrids and things like that will speed that up in the future? Yeah, but we don't have them yet. With that, this is the Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. It's in our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way.
Shut 